This is Amy, and you're listening to the Talkin' Appalachian Podcast. So I wanted to talk to you about a resource that I use quite a bit and I'll be using in this podcast. I used it in my book and I use it for podcast research, and that is the Dictionary of American Regional English. It's DARE for short, D-A-R-E, and you can find it online. You can subscribe to it as an individual or as an institution, but it's a really neat resource because it is, and I'm I'm going to share with you some information from the About page just so you know what it is. Unlike other dictionaries. This particular dictionary does not include words that are commonly used throughout the United States. They say they focus on the regional aspects of our language, documenting words, phrases, and pronunciations that vary from one place to another. So the information in DARE comes from a survey of more than 1,600 questions that were asked in over 1,000 communities between the years of 1965 and 1970. So in those five years, 80 field workers, which includes graduate students and professors, went out across the United States into these communities to sample, and that's a word that we use in research when we sample, we take a cross-section of population or of a group of whatever whatever we're studying. And they interviewed people. They asked them questions to see what words and phrases they would use to answer these questions. And so they also asked them to make an audio tape recording. And over 1,800 of them agreed to do this, but they were asked to read a story called Arthur the Rat, which is an informal reading that would give them another source of information on how people were pronouncing words that are standard across American English. It's a really neat resource. And what ha- what I like about it is if you type in a word or a pronunciation and you search that way, it will come up with a map. It'll tell you where the word was used. It'll come up with the history of the word. As much information, including the definition of the word, variants of the word, it'll give you as much information as they collected on that particular word. For example, if you're looking for the word groundhog, it'll pop up with all the variations of groundhog that people use and where they use them in the United States. It'll even tell you the age of the informants that use them, the level of education, all of the information that you need to find that out. A few days ago, I was on social and I was looking at a post by Landon Talks. And if you don't follow him on Instagram or YouTube, you should because he has the the best posts about Southern words and Southern sayings. And a lot of them are very similar. He's in Mississippi, deep South, but there are a lot of similarities, of course, between Deep South and Mountain South. So I'm constantly posting there. But I responded. He was talking about bringing salad to Thanksgiving dinner and kinds of salads that people bring. And he wanted to know about salads. And I was reminded earlier that morning, things kind of happen in a serendipitous way, I find. If, you just, if you're just aware of stuff, it just all happens at once. So earlier that morning, Southern Living, Southern Living Magazine had posted a recipe a video of killed salad, killed lettuce. And I couldn't believe that I was seeing that on a mainstream platform. I mean, Southern Living's pretty big. And they were talking about killed lettuce 
K-I-L-L-E-D, as an Appalachian dish. And they were talking about, you know, the spring greens. It's normally something that you eat in the spring and summer months because that's when you harvest your spring lettuce. But they went over the, you know, here's what you do. This is what a killed salad is, if you're not familiar with killed salad. So you harvest your spring lettuce. You add onion. You add tomatoes if you want to. You can pretty much add anything to it. The version that I know is just simple spring lettuce with onion, and then you kill it with bacon grease. So you you fry your bacon and you have your hot bacon grease and you kill it with the grease, which which simply means that you pour it over the, the lettuce. Of course, it wilts it. And then you add your, your bacon crumbles if you want to add that in. And that is called killed lettuce. So I posted that and I got this enormous response. It you know, triggered something in people's memories. That was a good thing. And they wanted to share their variations of the recipes on there. And so we got lots of different, you know, some people add mandarin oranges. and But a lot of people said, we didn't call it killed salad. We called it wilted lettuce, or that's what my grandmother called it. So that was another variation of that. But then I had someone else remind me that they didn't say killed. They said kilt, kilt, K-I-L-T. That, was, that would be the phonetic spelling of kilt. And that's right. We do use the T in a lot of the words that we use in Appalachia. It's called the intrusive T. That's sort of the technical name that linguists and sociolinguists use for it. And so I wanted to talk to you about the intrusive T because it reminded me that that's something that we use that I think a lot of people may not be aware of. I had forgotten that we also use it in words like once and twice. And you hear that among older generations. But yes, instead of killed lettuce, they would have they would have said kilt lettuce with the intrusive tea. Now I wanted to share with you some audio of Ray Hicks, who was a storyteller. He was widely studied as a storyteller from Beach Mountain, North Carolina from Western North Carolina in the lower Appalachian South. Ray Hicks is pretty famous for his storytelling. I think he he won national storytelling recognition, but he really was a, a rural country mountain man from nearby Beach Mountain. And if you have been following me over on Southern Salon and here, you'll know that I've podcasted about Beach Mountain and Blowing Rock here lately because I covered the Land of Oz for Southern Salon. And I also interviewed Ron Rash recently, and he's from uh, nearby. He's from Blowing Rock. And so all of these places, it's so funny that all of these podcast episodes are coming out of the same place. But I live just a couple of hours away from Western North Carolina over here. It's over the border of Virginia. So we spend a lot of time over there. When I went to Land of Oz, when I covered Land of Oz for Southern Salon, there's a nearby museum that has some artifacts of the original Land of Oz from the 1970s part. But what I didn't expect to see was a replica of Ray Hicks' house. Someone had literally built a replica of his home, his cabin, and included like there were little lights inside and there were rooms inside and you could see the little kitchen. And it was just like, it was like a doll's house, but you could see inside. And it was just the, it was the neatest thing to see a room dedicated to Ray Hicks and his storytelling. What makes Ray Hicks remarkable and why he was studied by so many people is because he had this really authentic Appalachian dialect. His vernacular is so thick. It's When I say authentic, I mean, he is pronouncing words the way that people have been pronouncing them here probably since they settled. And, you know, that's the the neat thing about the D.A.R.E. 
dictionary that I talked about earlier, because they interviewed people in in 1965 to 1970, the further back you go, the less change has taken place. And so, what I mean by that is, in in you know 60s and 70s, you had you had more people in the mountains and in these rural communities. You had more of those people who hadn't gone to college, who hadn't, that wasn't really an option for them, or they hadn't really chosen to leave because at the time that really wasn't the trend. And so what that means is the more levels of education you get, you become more aware, I guess, socially, academically, you become more aware of how you sound. And I think just gradually, unless you make a conscious choice not to change it over time, your dialect is going to level out. It's going to, it's going to standardize to some degree. I think unless you make a conscious effort not to let it do that. So the more people who hadn't left, hadn't pursued outside work, hadn't left and come back. Of course, a lot of people went off to war. That didn't necessarily mean that they changed their dialects because of it. It's it's, a, it's more about college and school, formal school is more about how you're measured and they tend to measure everything against standard English. And that's why it has sort of a leveling effect on dialect. But Ray Hicks was of that generation and he was of that place where, you know, he wasn't drafted like his siblings for war because I think I read that he had a broken arm at the time, so they didn't take him for the draft. So he didn't go off. He stayed on the mountain and he, you know, built his house and he farmed and he had a wife and a family. And so his storytelling is, his vernacular is pure. And that's what makes it so fascinating to listen to. So I occasionally, I think I'm going to bring up clips of Ray Hicks telling his stories, and you can hear for yourself the way the words sound and the words that he uses. And at this one audio clip that I found has Ray Hicks and his brother talking on the front porch, and his brother's sitting there with his his dulcimer, and they're talking about, again, ironic, they're talking about when the Land of Oz came in and how that changed everything. The Land of Oz Beach Mountain was developed sort of as a resort community. So you've got the ski resort and you had the golf courses and you had the gated communities that were built. And then Land of Oz was on top of the mountain as this little theme park. By the time this interview had taken place in the early 80s with Ray and his brother on the porch, the Land of Oz had closed. It had gone bankrupt. There had been a fire. It had been looted. They tried to reopen it. That didn't work. And so for many years, it just sat up there. In this particular audio clip, they're talking about the fact that they, before the Land of Oz, before that property was purchased, they were able to go gather herbs. They were able to gather ginseng. And he said that got them through the Depression, the ability to gather those those plants and sell them or use them. They got a lot from Beach Mountain. And it was kind of sad to see that all, you know, gated off away from the people who used it for so long. But what I want you to pay attention to is the way that he's pronouncing these words. And I picked up on a couple of instances of the intrusive tea. So I'm going to share them with you now. Oh, we tried to get something done about it, but never did. Never have got anything done. But you see now, people don't know to gather herbs. That don't bother me. No, the ones that come in here, yeah. oh, what they do, they'll come in here and they'll buy it and they'll sell off enough to get their money back, and then they'll build a house on it, and then they post it. Now, in case you didn't catch that, that was Stanley Hicks talking about 
what happens when people come and they buy property in Beach Mountain. And he says they come in and they build a house on it. And so that's an example of a noun that has been um, pronounced with an intrusive T, housed instead of house. And it's almost, if you're not listening close, you don't hear it, but it's definitely there. Now, another thing to take note of is that T isn't the only letter that intrudes into words. We also have something called the intrusive N. And the intrusive N shows up in this interview too. Usually it shows up when people are pronouncing your or their pronouns like that. They'll add an N to the end of the word. Listen to this next clip as Ray Hicks is talking and you'll hear it. I want to say I feel the best to say it's mine and I've paid the property tax. I've never missed a tax since I've stuck over the property. How do you feel about people buying up land and then selling it in here? Well, uh, I, I just don't feel good about it. But when they buy, it's theirs, you know, do what they want to with. He says, I don't feel good, but it's theirs to do what they want to with it. And so you hear that intrusive. Yeah. So Walt Wolfram and Natalie Schillings Estes in their book, American English, explain this intrusive T. So they say that usually words ending in S and F in standard English can be produced with a final T in vernacular English. So this results in what they call this consonant cluster of the intrusive T. So typically you'll hear words like once, twice, lift, and across. And then, of course, other S sounding words like house. This is a feature that, of course, we already know this is used in Appalachian varieties and other rural varieties. Another way that T can be used, the intrusive T, is by doubling an ED form. So, for example, this is called a long past form. So if words are already in the past tense, like looked, someone might say looked and that would be the intrusive T plus the past tense. So looked attacked for attacked. It treats the verb differently. I wanted to share one more clip with you of Ray Hicks talking about when his dad taught him how to gather the barks and plants on Beach Mountain when he was little. And he uses, um, instead of saying, Dad taught me, he says, Dad learnt me. And that's another common pattern among older folks in Appalachia is to say they learned me instead of they taught me. And in this particular recording, you can hear him using the intrusive T with learn. So instead of the ED, he just puts the T on the end. That's why I started on and so when he says his dad, when he says my dad learnt me to cut, he's talking about he taught him how to cut the bark and how to cut the roots with his pocket knife. So that was Ray Hicks in 1982. How do we go back 100 years and study the way that people pronounced words when we don't have the capacity to record them? Well, we study their diaries and we study their letters. And so linguist Michael Montgomery, the late Michael Montgomery and his colleague Michael Ellis, put together what is known as the Corpus of Civil War Letters Collection. And you can find that online. So they collected Civil War letters and they transcribed them for the purposes of studying 
dialect and the way that people spoke. The reason why these are so valuable is because these infantry soldiers in particular who didn't have lots of formal schooling probably hadn't read a lot of books because access to books was was not what it is now, would have written their words the way they pronounced them. So rather than understanding standard spelling, they would have pronounced their words the way they said them. So a word like fellow would be pronounced feller, and they would spell it F-E-L-E-R. So that gives us insight into how they sounded. So listen to the following clip. I pulled out a passage from one of these Civil War letters by a man named John Gregory. He was born in 1830, and he was a farmer, and he enlisted in the 38th Virginia Infantry on July 10, 1861. Unfortunately, he was killed in Gettysburg on July 3, 1863. But in 1862, on February the 17th, he wrote this letter to his wife, and it says, Camp near Manassas Junction. So listen to this little clip of this letter by John Gregory. I like to go out in a fight. The fellow struck me with tent pole. Chris was holding me, and I couldn't get hold of him. Now, Gregory is talking about getting in a fight with someone in his camp. It was Christmas time. They had been drinking. And so one of his fellow soldiers was holding him back. And he said that he was trying to swing at him, but he couldn't get hold of him. So instead of the standard hold, he spelled it H-O-L-T, which has the intrusive T. And so that tells us that 100 years before Ray Hicks, that was being used. So I hope you've enjoyed this little lesson on the intrusive tea. And if you decide to try silk lettuce, drop me a line and let me know how you liked it. Thanks to the Alan Lomax archive for these audio clips that can be found on YouTube. Ray Hicks telling his stories and talking about the history of Western North Carolina and culturalequity.org. Remember, if you like the podcast, please feel free to share episodes on social and subscribe to our YouTube channel where you can get video as well as audio of the podcasts that we post. I want to give a special shout out to our new patrons, Andy B and H. Reed, as well as the Southern Grifter. Thank you so much for joining us over on Patreon, and I hope all listeners will consider joining our community over on Patreon where you can get early access, ad-free episodes, and perks. I'll send you a handwritten note and a sticker just for signing up over on patreon.com slash talkingappalachian. Thanks for listening, and remember to keep talking Appalachian. Appalachian.